Well, last night, um, the aim was to help awaken us to the reality of our situation. You're here, the eternal, omnipresent, all-powerful, triune God is here, and He's here pursuing you, demanding all of you. And then the key question that we posed at the end last night, are you going to come out and unveil? Are you going to offer yourself to God's view? This morning, before we do our time of solitude, I want to give you some concrete, practical um, advice. This, is, this, is, this talks more advice. This counsel, this is help. We're all at different places. Not all of this advice will be relevant for everyone, but hopefully there will be something in here that will aid you as you encounter Christ. So I've got about uh, 10 or so things. They're real brief, um, and this is basically to help you, to guide you, perhaps, as you, um, as you engage with God in silence here, but then hopefully these are also things that you can take and use in your daily lives. So let's just begin. You can take some notes if you want to, to flag and, and remember them. So number one, begin where you are. Okay, number one is just begin where you are. One of the mistakes, I made this mistake for years, one of the mistakes we make in attempting to um, engage with God is we try to jump to adoration way too quickly. Like we want to be a 13th century monk ascending into the third heavens like right away. Um, we, we know that the highest encounter with God is worshiping Him just for who He is. And so we put that expectation on ourselves and we go straight there. We try to launch into the praise of God for His attributes and His, his mercy and for saving us. And, and we try to get there as quick as we can and it often then feels forced, like we're trying to make it happen. And so I just want to encourage you as we go here in a little bit and, and then whenever you're there in your life, just begin where you are. Start with the humblest and smallest gratitude that you can think of. The most basic thing, like your cup of coffee when you're going to go sit and read your Bible and pray, or um, a good night's sleep last night, or the comfort of the chair that you'll be sitting in, the fact that we have heat in this building on a cold day. Indoor plumbing exists. You should thank God for all of these things. And start really, really, really basic with tangible, concrete things, and then move from them to the bigger and the greater and the more glorious. And I've found for myself that that kind of tangible, concrete gratitude is the on-ramp to worship. Okay, it's the on-ramp. And if you try to get there too quick, try to go there too high, you won't make it. You'll just end up faking it. And so start, begin where you are. That's number one. Number two, I want you to learn to distinguish two activities of the mind one of them, this is, this is from Lewis, one of them Lewis calls enjoyment and one of them calls, he calls contemplation. So let me just try to explain what the difference is. Um, you can enjoy an experience or you can contemplate an experience. And this is the way Lewis puts it. You can't hope and think about hoping at the same time. You guys know what I'm talking about? You can't hope and think about hope at the same time because when you start thinking about hope, when you're hoping, you're looking at hope's object, 
fill in any emotion word there. Enjoying, delighting, praising. You're, you're, you're directed there. And when you think about hoping, you kind of step outside and look at the hope. And as soon as you do that, this isn't happening anymore. And all of us have probably experienced something like this, say, in worship, right? You're, you're uh, engaging with God, you're worshiping, your heart rises, and then all of a sudden there's like this little voice in your head that says, hmm, what's going on here? And you're like, you just want to strangle that voice. Like, there was a really good thing going on here. I was worshiping God, and you ruined it, little voice in my head, because you stepped outside, like, what's you to, to look? Now, that, so that, that's enjoying an experience, and then there's contemplating experience. And when you go to do some solitude with God, both of them will happen. And you need to know that that difference of experience is by God's design. Here's, here's one of the values of that kind of interruption. It's one of the best ways to fight sin. Because take, whether you're talking about um, something like lust, whether you're talking something like anger or bitterness, the quickest way to disarm it is to stop looking at whatever it's looking at and look at the lust or the anger itself, right? Start, like if you're stewing over the comment that somebody made to you, stop thinking about the comment and ask yourself, why am I so angry? It's the quickest way to just, it just diffuses it, right? So it's a, it has a value. It also is the quickest way to ruin humility, right? Everybody's had this experience where, you know, you're, you, you've become humble, God's begun to do some humility in your life, and then all of a sudden you notice that, right? And it ruins it. You you say, you know, so and this is a, in screw tape. This is one of the demonic st- strategies that Lewis talks about in screw tape. Is your patients become humble? Have you drawn his attention to this fact? Because he'll start patting himself on the back for his humility, and then this is the great part: is when all of a sudden he goes, "Oh wait, I see what's going on here. It's a trap, and I saw through the trap. I'm not going to take pride in my humility. Look how wise I am. Dang it! There it is again." And it just, you know, you can get lost in that little loop. And the, quick, and, the, and the best thing to do, quite frankly, at that moment is to laugh at the devil and get on with it. Don't get into a little fight in that merry-go-round over taking pride in your humility. So you, so you can uh, ruin sin in good ways. You can resist and disarm angers and lusts by contemplating them. And then you can ruin humility by doing the same thing. And so here's... Here's what's going to happen a bit. You're going to be engaging with God, and then all of a sudden that little voice is going to interrupt you. So what do you do then? The thing that you do at that point is use it as an opportunity again for gratitude. So if if you're engaging with God and then you step outside and you look, you say, oh no, I've just ruined it. No, you haven't. You can just say, God, thank you that you've given me the ability to engage with you. Thank you for your gifts, your kindness, and then get back to the confession of sin or to the uh, gratitude or, or whatever. Avoid getting lost in your head. Don't, don't take it as though you've ruined it forever. Use it again as an on-ramp. That's the second thing. Number three. One of the questions you may have, this is one of the questions I've always had, is um, can you bring your disordered desires to God? What I mean by disordered desires is there's all kinds of things that you and I want that are out of proportion to their value. You want them more than you should, right? Or, and you know this. You know that there's something probably that you really want from God. You're asking him for it. And what we tend to do is we try to play this game where um, you try to act like that's not the thing that you really want and pray for things that you think he wants you to want in hopes that by praying for the things that you think he wants you to want, he'll give you the thing that he really want, you really want. You guys ever done that? <laughs> so... So there's liars and then there's the rest of you. You've done this. 
You've done this. So here's, here's the account. So don't, you can't impress God. He's not fooled. He's not fooled by that little, like, little game. And so if you know, if you've got desires in your heart that you know are probably out of proportion, they're too much, they're, relatively speaking, it's taking up too much of your time, that's okay. Bring that to God. Bring it to God and offer it to Him as a, a request and as an act of repentance, both. And let Him sort it out. That's you, you, the only way that you'll begin to deal with those desires properly is if you bring them in, you're honest about them, instead of trying to do the two-step with him and fool him. You, you, the main thing is be honest about where you are and not try to pretend like you're someplace else. That's three. Number four, festoon your biblical prayers. Festoon's a fun word. It's a C.S. Lewis word. Here's what I mean. In your little study guide, I noticed they've got some biblical passages and some uh, formulaic prayers, I think. Um, Ryan will go over this in a bit, but as you use those biblical passages, one of the things that you can do to make them your own is to adorn them. That's what festoon means, adorn them. Restate them in your own words. So Psalm 121 is in there. Here's a line. He will not let your foot slip. So as you pray that, pray that. Don't just say it, pray it. You will not let my foot slip. That's a change. You did that. You adorned it. You will keep my feet firm, O God. You plant me on the rock. You won't allow me to be so overcome that I fall to my destruction. You're elaborating, you're adorning, you're filling out, you're making it your own. You're saying it in your own words based on God's words. That's a good way to pray. It's a good way to pray all of the time is to take biblical passages and festoon, adorn, re-say them in your own own ways. That's number four. Number five, beware... Of vague guilt. Okay, so I'm willing to bet that there are a number of you who walk around a lot of the time with a vague sense of shame and guilt hanging on you like a cloud. Okay? And and it hangs on you, and here's the problem with vague guilt. You can't repent of vague sins. You can't. The only sins that God forgives are real sins, which are concrete. So if you find that, that you have a vague sense of guilt hanging over you, a sense of shame that doesn't really have anything underneath it, here's what you should do. You should ask God to give you details because there really might be something underneath it, right? Like there might be. And so say, details, please. I need to trace it back. Find what's underneath. What's the concrete thing that you've done or not done? What's the real thing underneath there? Um, and repent of that. And if you can't find anything, then treat that vague guilt like a buzzing in your ears, which you're going to try to ignore. Okay? It may sit there and still try to thrust itself upon you, right? Kind of ruin your, kill your joy, ruin your moment. Um, and if, if there's nothing there, if there's no there there, if there's nothing, if there's no fire underneath that smoke, just keep pushing it away and direct your attention to God and say, God, I'm willing if there's things, but if there's not things, then help me to push back on the vague guilt. Don't wrestle with the guilt. Clouds are hard to wrestle with, and vague guilt's like a cloud. Number, is that number five? This is number six. There are other times, however, when you know exactly what the guilt is about, and you're trying to avoid it. Okay, so there's different dangers here for different people. This is what I'm getting at. Um, You're trying to avoid conviction, and you're trying to... pray about certain things or ask God for certain things and you're trying to avoid certain things. And here's what God is doing to you in that moment. He is standing there. He's watching you hem and haw, dance and make excuses. And the whole time he's saying to you, 
you know you're only wasting time. I'm very patient. I have eternity. I can do this all eternity long, wait for you to admit what's underneath there, to confess the sin. So if there's a specific sin in your life, here's what you should do. This is very basic. Clearly, honestly, sincerely, with as much sincerity as you can muster, confess it and do so without using euphemisms. This is one thing we do. Use the biblical words for things, not the sanitized words for things. So and again, your little guide is going to be really helpful here. I notice the questions your pastors put together. Those are good. So you, you say things like, God, I've stolen. I've lusted in my heart. I've committed sexual immorality. I've envied another person. I've coveted someone else's gifts. I'm full of bitterness and hatred toward that person in particular. I've puffed up and arrogant because of accomplishments that I've had. I'm full of anxieties and fears over the future. I'm not trusting you. Whatever the concrete, real things, use the biblical words for it, not the sanitized words for it. Number seven, when you're confessing those concrete, specific sins, Ask God to forgive you. Don't ask him to excuse you. There, this is big, okay? Often when we ask God to forgive us, what we're really asking is for him to excuse us. And there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Okay, so if somebody comes to you and they ask your forgiveness, what forgiveness says is, yeah, you've done an evil thing. But nevertheless, I'm not going to hold it against you. Yes, that was evil, but I'm not going to hold it against you. That's what forgiveness does. Excusing is very different. Excusing is actually the opposite. Excusing says, oh, I see, you couldn't help it. it. You didn't really mean it. So you weren't really to blame. So I excuse you. And there's all the difference in the world between those two actions. And when you go to God, which one are you really after? To excuse someone is to let someone off the hook because he didn't really belong on the hook in the first place. It's a matter of fairness, of justice. You don't blame someone for something that wasn't their fault. But here's what that confusion does when we bring it to God. Often, what we call asking God's forgiveness is what we're really doing is asking God to accept our excuses. We want Him to remember the extenuating circumstances surrounding that unfortunate incident the other day. We go, and then we go away, we imagine that we've repented and been forgiven when what we've really done is we've just satisfied ourselves with our excuses. We've convinced ourselves that what we did wasn't really that bad because we had reasons. Other people, you know this, right? Other people sin because they're wicked. You sin because you have reasons. All right, number eight. Um, don't feel the need to camp at the cesspool. It's a weird one. Some Christians over the years have thought that one of the main marks of Christian maturity is to have a permanently horrified perception of your own internal corruption, okay? So that your, your nostril needs to always be, you know, hovering over the inner stink of your soul. Faithfulness means you pitch your tent by the dark caves and the slimy bogs of your heart. Now, Lewis thinks this is a bad idea, but here's the th it's not a bad idea because it's not true. 
Your heart really is, my heart really is that bad. It is that corrupt. It is a slimy bog of stink. It is a cesspool. And when you look in there, you can, all, what you see is depth upon depth upon depth of self-love and self-righteousness and all kinds of grimy sin. It's down there. But what Lewis commended is a difference between an imaginative glimpse and an excessive stare. So the glimpse means you see it, it's there, it's ugly, it's bad, and then you bring it to God and then you don't spend too much time wallowing in it. But instead you bring it to him, you seek his forgiveness and you say, now help me move on. As opposed to saying, well, this is me, here's my junk, I'm just gonna build my house right by this and feel really, really, really awful all of the time about it. That's not biblical. Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. That's how God commends us, commends to us in, in the Bible. So don't wallow. You need to know it's there. You need to feel the ugliness of it. And then you need to remember that Jesus covers all of it. All of it. Number nine. Real self-knowledge or self-awareness comes from God's guidance. Okay? In other words, here's self-examination, which you're going to do some of in your time of solitude, I hope. Self-examination is really God-examination. Like He's the one who's doing the examining. This prayer from Psalm 139 is one of my most common. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So when you, when self-examination is not you going digging as though, because you, if you found anything, you'd just boast in it. That's what I would do. Look what I found. I'm so great because I found this awful thing in my life. You, you throw yourself open to God. You're not passive, but the activity that you're doing is opening yourself up to divine inspection. Self-examination is only safe when God's hand is on the reins. And so here's what this might look like for you today. Surrender yourself to God. Give Christ the keys to every room in your heart. Okay? No dark closet held back. No basement corner off limits. The whole house is his, and he can knock down walls if he wants. Okay, that's, that's your action. Lay ourselves open and just say, God, give me as much self-knowledge as will be helpful for me today. And there may be deeper sins, right? Like, he doesn't show you all of the things. He doesn't show me all the things. There's deep stuff down in the black, black caves that you don't see yet, but God knows you're not ready to see that yet. And he's patient. He's working on you. But he wants you to deal with the, the next thing and not the next thing after that first. So you surrender it. You ask for your little daily dose of self-knowledge, and then you believe. This is the hard part for some of us. Believe God is able to show me what I need to know. He really is. He's not playing games with me. He's not messing with me. He loves me. He will draw out my sin. He'll bring it to light in his time. And then, in the meantime, surrender yourself, forget about yourself, and get on with your work. Get on with the prayer or the confession or the gratitude or whatever. All right. One or two more. Don't measure your success in prayer by your immediate feelings. This is a trap. We, I fall into this. Um, your immediate feelings are often outside of your control. Okay? All sorts of things influence our, influence our mood. That's what I mean. Immediate feelings are mood. Your diet, your exercise, how much sleep you've had, all of those things. Bodily stuff can influence your mood. Emotions are important. They matter. You ought to feel certain things for God. 
You ought to feel grief for your sin, hope in his mercy, joy in his presence, gratitude for his salvation. You ought to feel these things. But one mistake I've often made is to try, because I know I'm supposed to feel it, is to try to gin it up, right? I remember there would be times in college when I would pray, and what I would be trying to do is like will myself into an emotional state. And I would measure the success of my devotional time by whether or not I was able to achieve a certain kind of emotional state. And Lewis was helpful because he said he did the same thing. He was going for what he called realizations, which was kind of this magic moment, which sometimes it actually happened, right? Like God would show up and it would be like this click in the soul and you would see yourself and you'd see the mercy and you would feel it really. And he'd say, okay, that's, what, that's, that's success. And so then every other time was measured by whether it got there. And if it didn't, man, what a failure I must be. So don't do that. Don't measure your success in the next hour or so by whether or not you break down into a wet mess. You know, your tears just flow and you're like, yes, this is awesome. If that happens, praise God. Praise God if you end up as a wet mess. I'm praying that some of you end up as a wet mess But if he fills you with a new joy, like if he stokes it and it's just churning, burning fire for Jesus, praise God for that. And then on on the other side, if you're just able to be honest with God for a half hour, no fanfare, no fireworks, no great wails, no great shouts, then praise God. Thank him for the small graces and keep pressing in. So here's... Here's the last thing. I want to close with a story uh, of, from Lewis about his wife. Okay, and This is a, the story that Lewis told about his wife after she died. He said, long ago, before we were married, his wife's name is Joy. Joy was haunted one morning as she went about her work with this obscure sense that God was sort of at her elbow demanding her attention. Okay, you ever had a moment like that? God's kind of on you, kind of feels suffocating, right? Like here he is kind of looming And of course, not being a perfected saint, she had the feeling that that he was probably had a question for her about some unrepented sin or some duty that she'd not done yet. And so he's at her elbow, God's pursuing, this is what we talked about last night, and then this is what Lewis says, at last she gave in, I know how we put it off, and she faced him. But the message was, I want to give you something. And immediately she entered into joy. How much effort we often put in to avoiding everything that would do us good. And this is the great paradox that I want you to carry into your time of solitude. So God is here and now, and like I said last night, he demands, and I use that word intentionally, and I knew it was a scary word for some people, he demands all of you. But the flip side of that is God is here and now, and he wants to give you everything. He wants to give you everything. He's for you. He's not against you. He's not safe, but he's good. He's not going to settle for half measures. Like he's not going to let you keep that wall up because he loves you and he wants to give you himself. And here's the, the ending here. He can't give you himself as long as you're full of yourself. He can't give you himself as long as you're full of yourself. But if you give up yourself, if you die to yourself, then he'll give you himself. And in giving you himself, he'll give you back yourself. Does that that make sense? Like, 
He can't give you himself as long as you're full of yourself. But if you die to yourself, then he'll give you himself. And in giving you himself, he'll give you yourself back. I know that sounds really strange. This is the amazing thing about the Christian life. You'll become more of who God made you to be, more yourself in his presence. Let's go to the Lord now. Father, thank you. I'm eager for this time for these, these friends. I'm eager for them and for me to meet with you, to encounter you. And I don't know where each person is, but you do, and you're at work. And so I can just trust that. We can just trust that, that you're at work. And so press in on us. If there's sin, bring it to light. If there's pain, bring it up and heal it. Help us to give vent to the deep pains that some of us labor under. May we not shrink back in fear, but know that you are after us, but you're after us because you're good and you love us. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.